0: Maybe some of you remember this time. There were people in our congregations who would count the number of times the minister said the word God in service and it wasn't a good thing if you said it more than once. There was, to put it simply, an allergy to using religious language, so sermons were called talks and hymns were all called songs. And as someone who had been raised largely outside of formal religious settings until the age of 16, it often felt like a strange kind of fundamentalism of its own, but also lacking a certain imagination and generosity of spirit about what we were trying to do together in religious community. And I also understood where it came from More so as I had conversations with people, there was and still is a lot of pain around the idea of God and how religions conduct themselves, not just in this country, but around the world. God continues to be used to justify all kinds of positions and actions. God apparently sometimes decides which team wins in an important game, which people are deserving of love and which can be bullied and left legally unprotected. Historically, notions of God have put people up on crosses and justified burning them at the stake and their shunning from community, except that all of that really isn't God's doing, right? Ludwig Feuerbach, the 19th century German anthropologist and philosopher in his book, The Essence of Christianity, a book that would go on to influence thinkers from Charles Darwin to Karl Marx, Friedrich Nietzsche and Sigmund Freud, Feuerbach famously says that God is essentially a human creation. He doesn't get burned at the stake for it miraculously. And as such, God bears all the projections, the hopes, but also the prejudices and the failings of its creator. To my hearing, that's why and how God has been used and still is by some to say that gay teens are going to hell and so results in much of the pull to suicide and self-hatred, that Unbaptized babies are going there, too, and to justify why women can't be ordained to name only some of the terrorism and the diminishment done in the name of God, still. So, to some degree, the problem with God is humankind. (laughs) I think the problem with God is also that we treat God like a noun, a proper noun, but really, God is a metaphor. God is a word that points to something beyond what we can see and touch and hold together, something that cannot be tested in laboratories or cataloged or measured in double blind studies. Forest Church, the Unitarian Universalist minister who served in New York in the congregation I came to call my own, used to say, God is not God's name but our name for that which is greater than all of us and yet present within each. Again, that call to make the metaphor more expansive and invite us all to consider it again. And church would tell stories about being on an airplane or at a party and when the person he was talking to found out he was a minister, them telling him without him asking, of course, that they didn't believe in God, like a confession or a defiant declaration. (laughs) Forrest would say what Richard Davis in this congregation told me is also an old rabbinic saying. He would say, tell me about the God you don't believe in. I'm sure I don't believe in him either. (laughs) God as a bearded guy in heaven Some man controlling every human action and handing down wrath, God who is jealous and narrow-minded. That's not God, that's just our unenlightened projections of the worst of our unenlightened humanity, right? But I think it's powerful and worth engaging in conversations about God, and I'm not willing to surrender it just because it's complicated and hard to be in this conversation as religious progressives. Which is to say that yes, there has to be a lot of care and humility when we talk about God. The level of uncertainty, of unverifiability means that we tread carefully in our assertions. But it doesn't mean we can't talk about God at all or that it has no meaning. After all, I submit to you, we talk about love And what it means, and what it calls out of us, and how it changes us, this thing we feel and know that's so central to our lives, but we can't pass it through lab equipment. And we talk about loyalty, and we talk about beauty, we talk about so many things that we feel and feel are important to us, that we find ways to be in conversations about. The key is to bring a sense of underlying humility about what we know and leave room for the mystery and the fallibility of our projections in our conversations. And this is especially true in conversations about God. I do think there are a few things we can claim, at least I'd like to think so. For instance, the longer I live, Any version of God that shuts people out of a circle of divine participation is not in keeping with what I'm trying to point to or describe when I say God. It also doesn't comply with any of the religious or spiritual experiences I've had that I'm also trying to name when I use that word. And of course, it can do damage that vision of God We had an ouch a few weeks back that reminded me of this in congregation. For those of you who don't know, who are new to the community, uh, we've recently adopted this ability. There are three words, but ouch is one that we say when something happens that feels hurtful. And it invites us into conversation and reconciliation and also shared learning back to the congregation. And it allows conversations to happen that need to happen. So it's been a really great tool. Well we had an ouch. Some of you may remember in March that we had a guest minister who told a story that he had written about the Creator and the animals that this Creator had created. It was, it was actually a lovely story. The preacher let me read it in advance before he shared it, and I totally missed something that many of you did not. It turns out, if you were paying attention, the Creator figure in the story And all of the animals, to the extent their sex was named, were all male. (laughs) Males are wonderful, but there is a point to this. Some of my best friends and spouses are male. But Sue Anthony, who gave me permission to share her story, told me later about how when she came to this church for the first time, the hymns were handed out in separate copies, and most of them had words that were, this was before the gray hymnal and the teal hymnal, most of them had words that were whited out and other words written in over those whited out words. How many people remember that, era? <laughs> And it turned out that there was this group of people in the congregation, I think mostly women, who as part of their ministry to this congregation would go through and make the hymns more inclusive. Many congregations were doing that at the time, swapping out pronouns, but also putting in other metaphors to turn Father God into Beloved or Mother God, at at least so that there was some parody back and forth in a hymn, or closing hymn, you'll see, does this in a single hymn beautifully. And Sue, who had grown up in a church where the message was that women could never be the divine heroes or sheroes of a story or be holy, fell in love with this church in part because of that. So when she heard the story, the Sunday in March, of the male creator and all his male creations, an old hurt and a living demand of her faith welled up. She loved Reverend Jamie's sermon, but she went up afterwards and shared her life experience and what she noticed about the story. Reverend Jamie got it immediately and apologized. I'm sure the story is gonna get an edit. And even in this sermon, I'll admit, I found myself writing God as he, all only as he at one point, because in part, old habits, die hard, all kinds of them, including theological habits of when God is made in the image of some humans, but not all. And part of changing all of this is remembering the cost of these habits. The ways in which when we talk about God, for me, I think for most of us, it has to be something that everybody can see themselves as part of, That's also part of them. What else? I reread some of James Cone's modern theological classic, God of the Oppressed, this week. Written in 1975, Cone takes this same venture on about challenging the notion of God as it's handed down, but in a larger frame that I think you'll enjoy if you don't already know it. Cone, who is a Christian, looks at how God shows up in scripture, drawing from a framework of understanding of Jesus as a figure in relationship to the culture around him that H. Richard Niebuhr offers, a Christ who with God, stay with me, is working through history to transform the culture around them And humankind is being invited into that so that the transformation will take hold. In this framework, Cone sees the story of Moses and the story of Jesus as evidence that what is essential to God's presence in the world and therefore to God, God's essence, is the desire to liberate the oppressed. Anything that enslaves the human body, heart, or mind is something God will work to defeat, Cohn says. And we then are called to be co conspirators with this force. Cohn takes his thinking a step further. He says if God stands in each era with the oppressed, then in the United States, God is existentially black. And later, womanist theologians would take Cone's work a step further and say, well, then God is existentially in America female and black, and I imagine that there are theologians right now saying that God is existentially trans and black. Here, I think, is where theology, and maybe I'm just a geek, gets powerful as a source are truth and a tool for our religious lives, to animate our religious lives with symbols and clarity, with challenge and solace. Have any of you noticed, by the way, the miracle that I was noticing this morning and being reminded of? That our stained glass windows, which were built in 1850s, have no image of a god. That is brilliant. Right? Think about the brilliance and forethought of not putting an image of what you think God looks like in the windows, like so many churches have. There's natural imagery, but it leaves the space free for this reimagining that we're constantly doing. It allows us to continue this work of animating our theology to wonder, as we might if we take Cohn's work further, what we wake to when we walk through the world that might be the way the God force identifies in our era, in our moment, in our city. Is the God force existentially the unhoused, drug-addicted person struggling with mental illness? How does imagining God in these ways change how we walk through the world and how we see it and see one another? Right now, the power of seeing God as earth, as every river and plant and landscape is something that communities have done done through time, are still doing through time, traditions are still alive to even Christian mystics sometimes came to. How does this change if we live into it the way that we see theologically our world and step into relationship to it? And why should our sense of the divine be anything less than life-giving and the most life-demanding and connecting and salvific force we can imagine? If there is a God force we align our life force with, it should be nothing less than the best we can imagine and have sensed. I would be remiss if I didn't share with you the strand of theology which for me is most alive, that connects and resonates with my own experience and experiences. It's called process theology. Process theologians are ones who talk about God as a force that is more than us, but in us, in the way that Forrest Church named it but also something that is in process. God as growing and evolving and learning, but here's the good part, the God who does that through us. So that as we evolve, each and all of us, greater wisdom or a deeper sense of love or justice or expand our compassion, God does also all of us fed by and feeding this incredible flow of power and insight, this life force that is fused and infused through us to evolve faster than it could have without us. I don't know if it's true that this is the case, but I love it. And something about it feels right to me. And it calls me, at least, to be in the work of reflecting on life and serving and testing my values out in the world, to be in relationship, to be seeking to be courageous in a deep sense that I am not alone in it and it serves a larger purpose than just my doing it in the world, which I love. Not a notion of some God watching over me but as a God who with me wants us to fail fast so we can evolve and heal the world as soon as possible. And it also makes way for that same God force seeking to learn, seeking to evolve, running through the black trans woman and the straight, able-bodied male and the Chinese grandfather in the walker and the unhoused neighbor who meets him on the street and if we could see that we're all part of this God mystery and love and seeking to evolve separately and together as fast as we can salvation at stake then I think there'd be no problem with God I think and we'd see that we're connected that we need to be connected in this conversation about what matters, that we're on the same God team. God, if God is a problem, is a problem because and when God is a non-reflective human creation. God is inherently a struggle because God is a metaphor A description of something that points beyond what we know to something that we ultimately only have glimpses of, moments of connection to. Our guide then for how to live in a world where this is true seems like it should be about how to be in conversation about what we know and feel about this force we try to name and serve. For me, that's where, and I'll close with this, the Buddhist parable of the people who are blind and the elephant is another great metaphor for God and our effort to understand God. In the story, each person, and you may know it, lays their hands on the beast and understandably generalizes from their own handful. One has the tail, one has the ear, one reaches their hands around a leg, and each one thinks that they therefore understand this thing that they hold on to. So one thinks that this creature is a rope, and another that it's like parchment, and the third that it's like a tree trunk, But the truth of the story and the parable is that they only have a chance to understand what they're in the presence of if they begin to talk, move their hands along, share their piece of the wild strangeness of this elephant. And maybe no one can ever fully imagine what an elephant is if they don't have eyes to see it. It is a pretty magnificent and wild beast but our only chance of understanding it is to carve out space, to talk about what we know or feel from the place in which we touch it. Feels to me true, deeply true about God and the invitation to be in the conversation And for us as Unitarian Universalists, the God we name will always have to be the one we talk about with respect for one another's experience, humility about what we know, but that doesn't keep us from stepping into the mystery toward understanding and spiritual growth and hopefully mutual evolution and the call to greater love and justice making. My sense is the essence of what any God is about is somewhere in that mix, and that God, whoever God is, would be happy being named anything if we lived that way in her, his, their name. So, so much for the problems with God, the promise of being in conversation leads us places that I think are deeply divine.
1: I remember as children, my parents would send my three siblings and I to a variety of different places of worship. Catholic one Sunday, Baptist the next. Sometimes we kind of understood, but other times not so much. Methodist, Episcopalian, others. But the two that really stuck with me were Unitarians and Quaker. Unitarians seemed so free and open-minded, and Quakers were so strongly silent. Both were very anti-war. Most of this time exploring and researching different perspectives of faiths and religions was done all on our own. Years later, we would become aware that our parents had not accompanied us because Sunday mornings was their special time alone. Later, junior high for me, We all as a family started attending a socially relevant American Baptist Church in State College, Pennsylvania, wherein the minister, Robert B. Wallace, was nothing short of miraculous. He was adamantly, vocally, against the Vietnam War and sponsored peace marches with our church youth group, always involved in the protests. There, amidst the turmoil and chaos of the psychedelic 60s, in a major college town where my father taught botany at Penn State, Bob Wallace became a calm, assuring voice and presence in our lives. I always recall the mantra he often shared, life is a gift. He also got into trouble with authorities for allegedly recommending channels for some parishioners to seek a safe abortion. During that debacle, the police illegally confiscated his confidential church records. That caused them to have to drop all charges. Some of us in the youth group were worried that while they police had these records, they might have gleaned our identities. Paranoid, they may have evidence now of our various proclivities for drugs, sex, and rock and roll. We were at once reminded of a youth retreat where most of us rebelliously had taken some LSD and gotten into some trouble. Even our female chaperone, the minister's wife, ended up dosed due to some unscrupulous students from our rival school giving her a laced drink. This was forbidden amongst our hippie friends, as it was both dangerous and downright mean. Through many meetings, one-on-one and with our parents, this minister deflected our fears and showed up in our senses, shored up our senses of selves. I really admired his calm demeanor and joys in life. I would wind up teaching both of his boys in Sunday school. My best friend and I would paint a 24-foot long banner saying, life is a gift, and took and hung it across the choir loft. Years later in the early 80s, I would reunite with the Wallace family out west here in Redlands, California. I would live with them in the church rectory home, first Baptist of Redlands. Got a job with the church as a janitor and maintenance worker. I helped raise their four kids for a few years while studying theater arts at the University of Redlands. All these experiences have helped shape my eclectic understanding of religion and faithfulness. I believe in gods, plural, not a single god, but in all people's faiths and religions, unless they veer into fear and violence. All beliefs should be worthy of respect and consideration. That's why I love you so much. Christian, Jew, Muslim, atheist, yes, even one's decision to not believe in God is sacrosanct here. I keep asking myself, Just who is this God I believe in? And there is no easy answer, though hope being a thing with feathers comes to mind. I hope there is a God force in this world that's all about lightness of being. I know it's simplistic, but I think God is mostly happy and light in spite of all the world's ills. When I think of God, I think of the good that's in all of us, children laughing with joy, the helpers, the lovers, the mystery of it all. But it's not a closed ring of thought it grows and hopefully continues to grow.